Welcome, everybody. Welcome, listeners and fans of Earth to Humans. My name is Matt Podolsky, one of the producers of the show, joined by Hannah Mulvaney. Uh, I guess the first thing we should do, Hannah, is talk a bit about our upcoming episode. This week's episode is about a photographer called Britta Jashinsky, who I met when I was about 20, and I was very fresh on the environmental scene still doing my degree and kind of still had this very um big feeling of being able to change the world (laughs) those days seem long ago now but I mean yeah (laughs) we're all there at one point but yeah I mean I'm still not still haven't lost hope for that but um, maybe less so these days but I met her and she was just this kind of like badass wildlife photographer who went to all of these like illegal wildlife markets and took these photographs that helped shut them down and change legislation and I don't know I just kind of saw her as this kind of wildlife conservation superhero she has this really incredible style that really appealed to me because it's really not your usual wildlife photography it's very artistic it's very hard hitting and it looks like it's a painting like her photography is really different and unique i love having opportunities like that to interview folks that 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 i feel like i already know pretty well because it i feel like sometimes it gives you the excuse to like ask a question that you wouldn't normally ask in everyday conversation you know what i mean and you find out things sometimes about people that you thought you know that you, you thought I mean that you do know right but uh I don't know some like it's those surprises can be uh fun I and I wonder if there was any any moment like that in the conversation where she surprised you yeah definitely because I think when you're having a conversation and it's not an interview you you're kind of both talking about things that relate to what the last person said and you're listening but and but you're also relating and and there's a lot of yeah like I think when you're interviewing someone it's about them entirely for like an hour um and you wouldn't usually have a conversation like that so I think it would probably make someone feel quite uncomfortable <laughs> unless they knew they were being interviewed like I am really excited to be joined today by Britta Jashinsky, who I have known for a little while now and admired her photography greatly. I will just pass over to you, Britta, and just let you introduce yourself to the Earth to Humans listeners, if that's okay. Okay, sure. Um, Hi, and thanks very much for inviting me to this podcast. I'm very excited about it too. So I'm a wildlife photojournalist, which means I'm not really taking photos of wildlife, like as in sort of highlighting the beauty of wildlife, but I sort of go where uh, wildlife animals or nature needs a voice to sort of speak out about something that's not right. And uh, yeah, I've been doing this for, God, 30 years, I think. Scary. But I'm also, you know, of course, it's a very rewarding 
job to do because you know I have sort of the great opportunities to meet some really interesting people who do amazing work and I you know have sort of traveled although partly I'm not so proud of the traveling part anymore looking at climate change global warming um, but of course I have really seen many amazing places in this world and I've been lucky you know in that way that I've had some sort of recognition and acknowledgement through some international awards and really important platforms that have invited me to give presentations and talks and exhibitions. So my work has really been out there and I feel so really honored and privileged that I was actually able to give a voice to a lot of um, animals and wildlife who need to be heard, really. So before we delve into what's in front of the camera, I just wanted to kind of get to know you a little bit as a person and kind of what got you into this field of work because it's a very what you do is very specific it's very harrowing and it definitely takes a certain type of person to be able to confront these issues and yeah I just wondered why and what got you focused on the topic area of your work Mm. I mean, I think, you know, from very early age, I've always had sort of quite strong interest in nature, but not in that way that I felt I necessarily sort of needed to be in nature, but I felt I, it was sort of my duty to protect nature. And I was sort of, you know, probably I would say raised by a family who always sort of nurtured, you know, animals back to health when you know like a little bird fell off the nest or you know all this kind of things my dad would always rock up with another hedgehog he had found on the street or you know there was definitely something that very early age but I also really felt and I'm not sure if this is actually something to do with my upbringing or whether it's innate even that I never felt superior to any other life I, I feel like we're sort of all equal you know like for me I'll give you an example from very early age my mom sort of records that I would scoop little beetles out of my sandpit because I was worried that I would squash them. Or, you know, for me, there's nothing worse than when I talk to sort of one-to-one -to, -one to a person and suddenly the person right in front of my eyes sort of like kills a fly, you know, like this, sort of, you know, catch it, kill it right in front of me. I'm like, oh, I'm horrified, you know, because I feel like, why? This fly has the same right to be here right now as we have. Why would I take the liberty and kill this creature where it's not even in my way it's not doing anything to me you know kind of thing so yeah I mean you know I've, I've always sort of had this uh, deep down inside me really so I always felt that every human instead of so just enjoying nature and taking from nature I think we all should feel almost obliged to protect it you know there's for me it has always been a great sense of responsibility for my environment for my surrounding and then of course as a child that was that but and then it kind of grew of course you know on a global scale I suppose you know like if I now hear of some desperate situation in, in another country uh, even if it's far away I feel I, I sort of ought to go and and check out if, I, if there's something I can do you know to help the situation basically. It's funny that you say that because it reminded me of at primary school whenever it rained a lot all of the earthworms would come off of the football pitch onto the playground and I used to pick them up and put them back onto the playing field and people used to call me worm girl. 
<laughs> so I can definitely relate to uh, just wanting to kind of help everything in your Beatles in the sun pit story for but sure. You know, I, I still do this now. And, you know, people don't call me worm girl. They, talk, they call me nut job. You know, they think I'm insane. I mean, I've <laughs> myself sort of spending hours collecting sort of snails, you know, off the streets or you're like worms or whatever I might find. And yeah, as you just said, when it rains, sometimes it's like everywhere. It's just... <laughs> And at this time, collecting all these sort of animals, trying to put them into safety. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I still do this now. Nothing has changed. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if there's a stray earthworm anywhere, it's definitely uh, going back on to into a grassy, nice grassy patch if it's anywhere near me. <laughs> so if we kind of go back to the kind of origins of your career, have you always been a photographer? Is it something that you've always wanted to do? Um, so I've... Yeah, I have pretty much always been a photographer. And yeah, it's, it's quite strange. I, I thought about this during the pandemic when all my jobs were cancelled. You know, all my assignments were like taken away. You know, my whole life was wiped out. <laughs> Within two weeks, everything was cancelled. I was like, oh my God, I've, I've never done anything else. <laughs> you know, how can I earn money? Should I become a driver and sort of deliver groceries or something? Yeah. I literally felt like there was like nothing else. I mean, of course, there's other things related, like editing and, you know, sort of design and, you know, related to all the projects I've been doing. But to actually, as a profession, I have never done anything else but being a professional photographer from very early age because I did an apprenticeship. I took A-levels and then I did sort of some work experience for a year. And then I went straight into an apprenticeship in Germany. This is what people do, you know. So for two and a half years, I did an apprenticeship, became a professional photographer and then worked there in advertising and sort of one of Europe's biggest advertising agencies actually for two and a half years till I was completely bored <laughs> of my mind with advertising. Um, and then decided to go to England to study photography there and then was a photographer, you know. So yeah, this is, this is sort of it. I've really done nothing but photography. However, if I go further back, I mean, I had a really great passion actually for storytelling always. And my first attempts with storytelling was not through photography, but was actually through writing. Just that I felt um, school told me <laughs> and I probably didn't have a great talent for it. Now it's not strictly speaking true. My teachers always said that my storytelling was extraordinary. And I was always best in class, but my grammar sucked. <laughs> they always say, you go and you need to shave up on your grammar and then, and then come back with that story. And it was like, through that I'm just going to find something else to tell the story you know so and also I did a bit of painting actually so I think my biggest influence is not really photography it's more you know painters really you know and and artists in, in general so the old school artists and painters were my first influence when I was a, a child and then photography was just you know it came to me as something I can use as a tool really you know, I kind of felt if I can accomplish that skill and I clearly had a talent for creating, you know, let's say just composition, you know, compose a photo. It sort of just worked for some reason. It's not that I really learned it. I just sort of had that in me that I felt I know how to do this. And and it was really quite early that when I, you know, started doing uh, sort of secondary school, really before my A-levels already, I was sort of creating pictures and, you know, I, I could definitely see that it did something to people, you know, and you know, my teacher sort of encouraged me and said, listen, I think there's really a talent there. And I kind of specialist on photography and art history at the time. That was sort of my subjects in school. Yeah. And then, of course, it was sort of obvious that I was going to try to become a photographer and applied for an apprenticeship in Germany and then got it at one of the biggest 
most you know really known and best companies really in my hometown Bremen in North Germany and uh, but then as I said I was sort of really bored with it and I went to um, a talk somebody gave from Bournemouth Art College at the time it was called Bournemouth Art College and I was really blown away by this talk because she was sort of saying about how the influences of old photographers like Magnum, you know, all the people who kind of started photojournalism really, how they influenced this particular college. And she was giving a really fascinating presentation about it. And I was like, oh, I must go and apply. <laughs> and so I did, and I just applied and then, you know, went for an interview, got accepted there and then, and just moved to England basically, like from one day to the next, with one suitcase in my hand. And uh, yeah, and just sort of settled for, for now at the time in Bournemouth and then ended up doing a equivalent to a BA there as well. And that, that's really sort of my first or second stage in being a photographer. I think it's really interesting what you've said about your journey into photography and it coming from an artistic place and a place of storytelling because the artistic nature of your work is so prominent. And it's what caught my eye about your work from the first moment that I saw it, because it's it's very different. It's very unique. It's so eye catching. It's really powerful. But it obviously comes from a place of art. It's fascinating work because it, it tells such a powerful story, but in such an artistic, deep way. So it's it's fascinating to hear that that's kind of what your inspiration was and where it came from, because it, it very, very much comes across that way. So from studying at Bournemouth University and well, Bournemouth Art College, sorry, should we say. So while studying, was that when you decided that photojournalism was the path for you and how did you know instantly that you wanted to tell stories about wildlife or were there other avenues that you were considering? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I think when I came to Bournemouth, I wasn't totally sure what I wanted, but I definitely wanted to give more meaning to my work because, which is why I sort of said that, you know, working in this agency was very good for me to learn all the skills, technical skills and photography, but then to bring a meaning into the work was definitely not at the time happening in this company in Germany. So, which is why I felt so inspired coming to England. And there I was a little bit, at the beginning, I think I, I probably was quite lost, you know, thinking, okay, what, what am I doing here exactly? But I worked incredibly hard. And I remember I was like, what was the first, you know, the first in the morning and the last in the evening leaving, spent like days and days in the darkroom, trying to learn all those darkroom skills as well. And I was so quite, fascinated by it all, you know, kind of printmaking, um, you know, old school in with the chemicals, you know, processing the film, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed all of that, you know, the craft of photography, I really enjoyed. And also what I realized is, of course, that you can add a lot to a photo, you know, it's not just a photo, and which is, by the way, I'm always still trying to explain to, to people now, like a raw file is basically almost like a negative. You do still need to work on it. It creates a raw file to then be worked with. Because often, you know, as a as a jury member of many international competitions, I'm sometimes I'm I'm horrified by seeing how poorly the images are processed. And that's not because you know people can't be bothered, it's because they actually don't know how to do it because they've never learned how to do it. And once you have the darkroom skill, you know, like for example, the way I process my pictures, you know, I apply the same skills I learned in the darkroom, just that I use it 
you know, now digitally on my computer, but I have the knowledge, you know, I know how low lights and highlights work. I know what to change in the raw file to, you know, to make it look more powerful, basically. And so, you know, so sometimes, sometimes I think there is a real, in this sort of new generation of photographers, sadly, there's a real lack of this because I see a lot of really good photos, but they're not actually making it even to the first round because they're so poorly or, or not process at all, actually, you know, and some, sometimes we even use just JPEGs, you know, they, they don't even have raw files, you know. So, you know, this is sort of something I would really like to, uh, longer term, you know, I would love to sort of be able to sort of help younger photographers to get their head around how to improve these skills, basically. It's actually been something on my mind for the last couple of years. But so because I was sort of a bit lost that I spent a lot of time at sort of improving my technical sides of, of photography, and then I have to say what, what came to me really is, a, is a, a, one of our tutors there who was a very big influence. And he was somebody who would not teach anything about photography, but he would just in his lessons talk about philosophy and the meaning of life. And from him, you know, he's like, you know, some of those people have talked about the one teacher they will never forget. And that has really changed their life. Now that is that guy for me. You know, I have really, I've been lucky enough to have had a teacher in my life where I feel, wow, he almost created me. If it wasn't for him, I don't think I would be doing anything I've been doing, basically. He got me to really fully understand my potential of the, the power one can have through a great skill, which is photography or journalism or art, or whatever skill you have, put it into good place. You know, there are a lot of talented people out there, but I think they don't know really how to use it. And this man really taught me this. And, and it was sometimes painful. He was very honest. You know, it's this sort of, you know, Bournemouth at the time was really hardcore. You know, you would produce set of images and then you had to give a talk about it in front of everybody. And it was like making a strip, basically, at the time. And, you know, all young people. And it was just like, people would take you apart, you know, literally and say, like, this is, this is crap take down these pictures, throw them in the bin, start again. You know, we want, we want more heart and soul in these pictures, you know, stop producing the superficial stuff. Because look, I came from an advertising background. So my first pictures were just, it was actually my first picture was supposed to be a series of a portrait and they were all just really nice pictures. <laughs> and so basically that forced me to throw them in the bin and start again, you know, kind of thing. but it was the right, it was the right treatment. I needed that because I needed to actually I needed to open up, you know, I think what, what happens is like, especially with the education I received in Germany, was very uncreative, to be honest, at the time. I think it's different now, but, you know, let's not forget, I was still raised by a generation who, where, you know, Hitler, frankly, you know, the Nazis, they just wiped the creativity out of people, you know, it was almost deleted. And so it was very difficult, you know, if you think about all the artists and the musicians, you know, they all had to flee Germany, they had to leave, you know. I mean, imagine, I always think that imagine, it wasn't for Hitler, how, what, what a different country Germany would be. I still think Germany is a great country now because I think they've done a lot of homework and, and have really worked on their history, you know, so I'm pretty quite proud of that actually. But at the time I was like, you know, I just felt I was really lacking depth and creativity. And so I, with the knowledge I had and the technical aspect and what was happening in Bournemouth, I think I managed to really almost like recreate myself but it was painful, you know, it was very hard work. And I, I went through the grinder, you know, like for a couple of years. And yeah, it, it, was, it was difficult and it took very late hours and dark rooms and 
crits, you know, we used to call them and discussions. And, but also, you know, we were that generation where we would never stop talking about subjects and things. You know, there was every night somebody hosted another dinner party and we would talk till late night. Obviously there's quite, quite a lot of drinking involved, I suppose. But, you know, it was all very interesting. You know, it was fascinating stuff as well. And then we also had the privilege of having huge amounts of famous photographers coming to visit us there and to give talks, you know. I mean, I met so many famous people. I'm not, not gonna start name dropping now, um, but there were a lot of people and there were people who really influenced and inspired us. And uh, yeah, so it was really, it was a great learning, I have to say. It was hard, but it was a great learning. So when I left, I already had actually a book deal with Fiden in my bag. So there was a guy who worked for Fiden. He was an external examiner. Now I achieved distinction in my finals there and he just came to me afterwards as an external examiner and gave me his card and said, I need to talk to you. And I, you know, like he was, he worked for Fiden, you know, one of the biggest publishing houses basically at the time. And I was like, okay, but you know, in those days I didn't have email, there was no iPhone, whatever, you know, I kind of just basically wrote him a letter <laughs> and I posted it and, and then, um, and then he actually called me and, and he said, yes, you know, we would like to offer you a book deal with your Zoom project. I'm like, what? And I never really thought about it, you know, before. I wasn't aiming for it to be a book, but, but it just really happened. And, and it was sort of amazing. It was sort of almost like magical. And then what I felt was what I had decided for myself almost subconsciously is that well, I, I was trying to never take a photo I had already seen before. I think this also partly answered your question where you said, like, I've got quite an unusual approach, but for me, there is like something, I'm not saying I always succeed in it, but when I look through my viewfinder and I see something which I've already seen before, somebody else has taken before, then I don't press the shutter. <laughs> you know, I need to then make another effort or find a different way and then press the shutter if I feel like, okay, this is different. And then of course I have also people sometimes shouting abuse at me. So like, oh, such crappy pictures, out of focus, blurry you know like what, what is this weird composition there's half a head only visible what's all this you know rubbish and I'm thinking but you know what if I like it then that's good enough for me I never take a photo to please anyone you know I never think about how can I say it so people understand it how can I say it so I understand it and that it's good for me yeah this is what I focus on when I when I create photos and with the new work I don't know if you've seen it but there's a, one of the photos just one uh, is a finalist in the wildlife over here this year People also have said to me, what the hell is this? I don't even know what I'm looking at. And I always say, well, you know, make an effort and, and read the caption. And then people go, of course, oh my God, okay, wow. But people think it's a really strange photo to take, you know, and, you know, often I think people are too scared to do it, where I just do it, you know, yes, I, I can see it's a very strange photo to take. And I can see that everybody's gonna go, what the hell is this? But I take it anyway because I think it's an important photo to have. And then because it's because it is so unusual what I'm talking about, which is basically uh, the harvesting of minerals, you know, the way we go about and harvesting minerals and where uh, wildlife's safety is compromised because of poorly paid miners, you know, that's the story basically. Uh, which then leads to a virus spillover, which is like exactly what we need to talk about at the moment. But you know, so. You know, of course, I think it's unusual and, and people go, even the people I've worked with, you know, who are often biologists or scientists or, or 
border force, you know, border police people, special agents, they always look at me with this big question mark on their forehead going like, what is this woman doing here, <laughs> you know? But then they see the picture afterwards and go, ah, okay, now we're getting it, that works, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, I always feel like I, I like to sort of push for something else. And, and it's a lot of experimentation involved, you know? I mean, and sometimes it doesn't work, you know? I've also found myself going like, well, actually no, nobody's gonna pay attention to that ever. Let's not, let's not even publish this photo. But, but often it does work. You know, and I'm not somebody who churns out huge amounts of photos either, to be honest. It's, it's really, I really take time over one photo. You know, I'm not going to a place and come back with thousand pictures. I go to one place and come back with 20 photos. And out of that, then maybe, you know, maybe actually 20 or, or sometimes only 10 are actually useful because it takes me like hours to create one photo. Not, you know, I don't, you know, I've, I've seen other photographers and of course I've been also in Africa taking photos with other people. So I sit and I very occasionally press the shutter and I have loads of people sitting around me going, you know, on the, on the shutter, you know, like, wow. And then I'm, I'm not criticizing this at all. You know, everybody needs to find their own way to do it. But I'm just sort of explaining how I work. It's sort of more like creating it, you know, like using different tools, different, using different methods. It's like a slow process. And also I always think quite a lot about it before. Like I remember probably the first time when you saw my pictures, when I was invited to widescreen, it was in 2017, I think. Not, maybe even 16 or something. No, not 17. So anyway, and it was quite funny because I was sort of telling, I think, widescreen what I was doing. And they were like, okay, that sounds really interesting. But what, what, what do you, how do you actually take these pictures? I'm like, oh, well, it's difficult to explain. And I kind of explained it and they were like, oh, okay, that sounds a bit weird. <laughs> but then when they saw the photos, it's like, oh my God, that, that's really unusual. And that works, you know, which was the confiscated series. The two elephant feet, you know, which that then basically sort of won any major award, you know, in, in that year, basically. But yeah, so this is, this is really how I work. It's like, I explain to people, I mean, also with other talks I've given before where I just said, oh, so I've been to China, I've done something. And then luckily people now sort of trust me and say, okay, look, we just book you for this talk. They don't even know what they're going to see. <laughs> um, but they, they, I think people now have the insurance that they will definitely see something they have not seen before. It's basically what I'm, what I'm trying to say. So, and you know, without sounding arrogant, I'm not saying like, oh, look who, look at me. You know, it's more like, I'm just explaining in a really honest way the process I'm going through. I think it's quite clear that you do take really, really unique photographs. And I think like the influences that you've had throughout your career really show. And you explaining that you wait for the exact right moment. I think that really shows in your work as well. I think the first photograph I ever saw of yours was actually the cheetah that's walking through the ash. Mm. And as I, I've now been working with with the cheetah charity for the past four years, and I've never seen another photograph like that. And it shows that kind of sitting and waiting and biding your time and trying to find that exact right moment and the exact right scenario and thinking what hasn't been seen before. Because obviously you've mentioned that you're a judge of the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award. So you've had access to a massive amount of photography that you obviously have to filter through to find the very best of the bunch. And you must see a lot of 
the same work being produced you are looking for unique things and I think having you as a juror is actually a really really good thing because you you want to see things that you haven't seen before yeah I mean I think there's definitely a lot of people out there now who try to find you know different ways for their photos in terms of composition and you know angles you know there's only so many photos you can look at like a line you know of a line or whatever or of a you know as I said of a, of a cheetah you need to really add something to draw the jury's attention to it you know but there I mean it, it, it happens I have to say it's I mean it's very impressive what people come up with these days you know what people send in it's it's very impressive and it's often it's very hard you know to make a call on things basically and then of course there's also sometimes the jury who disagrees <laughs> you know so you've got some quite interesting debates if not arguments or somebody leaves the jury room you know this <laughs> it all happens but it's, it's always you know it's always really interesting also what people have to say and but I think there's you know it, it's really wonderful how I think the efforts people make you know the efforts also young photographers make you know to to being heard and to somehow get onto some kind of level where they can then get assignments and you know publications and it's very hard I mean the competition is fierce I really feel for this new generation now I think it's incredibly hard and and I think the problem is also social media you know I always say to the younger generation of photographers don't burn your pictures on social media you know what what often photographers don't understand is that if they put all their images out on Instagram none of these images are actually going to make it into the competition because if they've been seen even the competition organizers they they pull them out you know, they don't want those pictures in there, you know, because they want new pictures in their competition. You know, especially the big competitions, they, they don't want that. So, and I've, I've sort of, occasionally, to be honest, I even take the liberty and directly contact photographers when I see a younger photographer who's kind of done an amazing photo shoot and he puts it all out on Facebook and Instagram, I literally contact them and say, take these pictures down because you need to enter them to a competition or get them into newspaper or on a big, big platform, you know, and then they go like, yeah, you're right. You know, I didn't really think about this because no, no magazine is going to take your pictures if you already had to put the story out on Instagram. Yeah. And it's just a simple fact, you know, and to be in the last two years of being on the jury of the big competitions, you know, the organizers actually saying that to us, you know, we as a jury have to pull these photos out. If somebody ran a campaign with one photo on Instagram, it's not going to stand a chance to get shortlisted for any prize. It's just the way it is. So, um, and so this, this is something I think people need to become more aware. You can still use a lot of material, you know, like, I mean, I, would, I never, for example, do posts unless they already have won an award or have been a finalist, or I do more posts about like the actual work I'm doing or like behind the scenes or the talks or, you know, so, so I get, people's attention in that way to promote a subject. You know, if I want to get attention, you know, about let's say a new vote in a parliament about trophy hunting, then I really think about what I'm going to post. And it's probably an image that has already either been out there and published and, and awarded, or like me while I'm taking a photo of a trophy or something, rather than actually my latest photo, which I'm hoping to get an award. And the reason why I'm encouraging people to Go for these awards because it is a really good way to draw attention to a subject. I mean, I have really felt this. It's like, you know, having received these big international awards has changed my career in that way. That you, your image, is out there and it's 
gets its own, it grows its own legs, basically. You know, the, your, your message is being heard across the globe if you are a finalist or hopefully even a winner in an international competition. You get exhibited all over the world and you get published all over the world, you know, in every important magazine. Now, that's not about my own ego that I want to achieve that. It's totally about the subject. I mean, there is a reason why some of these performances are documented in China. They, they have, as a consequence of that, they've been published so vastly and also exhibited in Beijing Museum, for example. These, these places have been shut down permanently, you know, as a result of, these, of the Wildlife of the Year Award. You know? So, I mean, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And I think, you know, young photographers, um, it would be great if they become more aware. I mean, you know, if you're a photographer, maybe it's not so important for you. You just want the images to be seen and getting like 2K likes is good enough for you. But if you actually want to make a difference and achieve something and get it to a government, I think the best way is to actually get it into press across the globe through a competition. That leads us really well into discussing the subject matter of your work, because your first book deal was based on a zoo, did you say? It was based on captive animals. And I know that captivity, performing animals, bear biofarms, the illegal wildlife trade, all of those are topics that you have covered. So I just wondered if you could take us on a bit of a timeline of your work from that first initial zoo project that you did and what that work featured. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as I said, right, um, you know, quite, quite early, I had this sense of, you know, protecting animals and wildlife. And I think it kind of was something that happened automatically then in my work that I wanted to kind of, as I said, you know, give a voice to certain animals. However, see, I don't distinguish between the legal and the illegal wildlife trade. So I therefore call all of this wildlife crime. So, you know, the zoo project I did, which was which started while I was actually at college, is also wildlife crime for me because I, I can't see why we take right the liberty to go to a place, let's say Africa, capture an elephant and then transport this elephant into a zoo to display it for our entertainment. Now, people say it's for education, but okay, this is a different story. <laughs> we need to talk about that another time. It's, it's up to a debate, isn't it, whether it's entertainment. Uh, it's certainly not for conservation purpose <laughs> because, you know, the, these are not the animals we, we need to put in a zoo to conserve, basically. So this was obviously my start. And, you know, it sort of almost took a natural course, really, because there was the, the more work I did, the more people came to me saying, can you look at this? This is really important. And of course, sometimes I was really inspired, like seeing, you know, when I saw a documentary about somebody in China who was trying to end bear farming, for example, I felt hugely inspired. And I just basically contacted that person and said, oh my God, I would, I would love to come and talk to you and, and see how you do this, you know, like, how do you work? And, and she said, basically, absolutely come. I would, I would love you to kind of document what I'm doing. Anyway, this, so this is how it happened. And then I, I did that. And then as a consequence, you know, the next thing happened. So it's also almost like some of it's not really totally, you know, my control It's like people also that come to me and ask me to do things, you know, like, for example, I once worked with customs and then other people from another country contacted me saying, I saw this work you've done. Would you come and do work with us? So it's always, it's sort of just happens very uh, organic, you know, I would say. But there's definitely, you know, for me, the importance is that I always think about what needs to be said next, you know. So it's not really about my 
you know, creative fulfillment or my, you know, what, what I for myself would like to do now in terms of or an exhibition or whatever. It's more about okay, what is actually the next important thing to cover here, you know? Like, so for example, as you know, I went from sort of the legal wildlife trade to the, to the illegal wildlife trade. And now I'm thinking, okay, there's now a lot of attention on that protecting wildlife. So, but because of the virus spillover, I now need to move into that area. So it's like obviously linked, but if I talk about virus spillover, viral pandemics, I also need to talk about biodiversity loss and climate change, <laughs> you know? So, because everything is interconnected and, you know, because all things on the planet are interdependent, I thought, okay, like now my head is spinning. How do I, how do I put all of that into one project? <laughs> and uh, and that, is, that was hard, I have to say, but. It was also like a gradual sort of organic process during the lockdown because I started thinking about it. I thought, okay, Britta, there's the illegal wildlife trade, there's a viral pandemic. So what, how can I explain this? And, and this is what I did during the lockdown, basically. I mean, it was frustrating because I couldn't travel anywhere, as you know. Um, but what I did, I really used the time to work on developing concepts, you know, future concepts, basically which is like why the new book was born, you know, which we have just produced basically after Photographers Against Wildlife Crime. This is now a new book. I would love to discuss your crime project in more detail. That's where our journeys overlapped and that's when I first met you. And I think that was a really interesting project. It won lots of awards and I just wanted to kind of touch back in with you because I met you at the beginning of that project and it's developed so much since. And I remember sitting at Wild Screen and listening to you deliver your talk and everybody in the audience being stunned. There were tears, there was shock, there was horror. And that project has developed since then. So I just wanted to touch on that. Well, do you know what? I have to say, I was very surprised how successful that project was. I mean, like, you know, that sounds kind of wrong, but because I'm, I'm obviously delighted. But when I, you know, I, I'm always quite clear about what I'm sort of trying to say, but of course I can never know where this goes. And which is what I said to you earlier, what, the wonderful thing about a photo or entire project is when it grows its own legs and it just starts having its own life, you know, and and it's almost like you have no more control where it's going and what it actually does to people. And, and I, I very much felt that with this project, it really spread like a fire across the globe, you know, because so many people saw it. And so many people came to me saying, I want to publish this, I want to interview you. So I think the message was definitely out there. And subsequently, you know, people then from governments came to me you know, decision makers, law enforcement officers, and, you know, all these sort of people who, who felt they could actually use these pictures to promote their own cause, you know, in terms of, um, yeah, changing laws, you know, and, and making the right decisions before it's too late, you know, on trophy hunting, on the high demand we still have now from China, you know, or from other countries, you know, the consumption also in Africa and, and also, I mean, you know, I kid you not, there's a lot of rhino horn coming into this country, even, I don't know if you're aware. <laughs> um, also because it's seen as, for example, as a future investment. So it's not actually there to be consumed. You know, I, I would almost go as far as saying that people in this country unlikely to consume rhino horn as a traditional Chinese medicine, but they, you see it as an investment, you know, they put it in their safe and then they're gonna wait what happened because one day rhinos are wiped out. 
So therefore they think, well, I have got that last rhino horn in my safe, you know, kind of thing. Wow. So it's still a problem, but at least it's being looked at, you know, where when I worked on this project, you know, there was still, there was not even law enforcement. So you would, if you smuggled something, you would lose what you smuggled illegally, but there was no law enforcement. People wouldn't go to prison for it, you know? And, you know, when I was talking to, you know, all these sort of uh, special agents and officers at border points, you know, they were actually so frustrated about this as well, because they were saying, like, we can't really do anything about it. This is the problem, you know? We can take the stuff away from people, but there's nothing we can really do, you know? But anyway, there now is, you know, this is the wonderful thing. And, you know, but sometimes when people say to me, what, what do you actually think your work makes made a difference? I mean, I don't know because I don't know what, what the world would look like without my work. Um, but I would say at a minimum, maybe I was a tiny wheel in a hopefully greater movement, you know, to raise awareness and, and to kind of like enforce more laws, basically. I mean, there's now definitely a lot of things in place that did not exist in 2017, that's for sure. But there's a lot of people now working on it, which is great because, yeah, I mean, only together we can we can work on this, but but I think it is, if anything, it's definitely caused a lot of awareness also for the general public, you know, over the years, because I think people really didn't know that this stuff is still going on. And still, you know what, it's really interesting, after I gave a talk just now in Germany, somebody afterwards said to me, it was actually a supporter of the current project, and she said, oh, so my father, I told my dad about it afterwards, and he said, oh, these are all pictures of elephant feet or whatever, this is all from like you know colonial times like no it's not it's, it's stuff produced right now you know yeah god if only yeah yeah exactly i mean even you know it's, it's some border points but that border points i don't want to kind of point my finger at any particular countries now but i was shocked to see that there's still ivory new ivory still being traded i mean you know, WWF apparently says there is still 20,000 elephants a year killed for ivory right now. So, I mean, it's still all going on. And, and you know, I think at least there is more awareness now. At least there is more law enforcement. Um, and and people are going to prison, you know. That, that's, that's the best thing about it. And, you know, funds, you know, are being frozen in accounts. You know, profits are being taken away from people and these kind of things. It just didn't exist. So, and, you know, of course, you know, for me, it's still a lot out there now, which I still would like to photograph, but I now would like to use the work in a different way where I not just only say, look, this is confiscated, but I want to use these items to actually tell the bigger story. And this is really my new work I'm doing now. So the oh, that project, you know, which I started in 2017, I mean, sadly, as you know, I had to kind of stop and, you know, because during the pandemic lockdown, but I sort of picked up on that now where I still go back now and work with special agents, for example, and scientists creating sort of still lives that were sort of based on what I did before, but now tell more comprehensive stories, you know, about, so what is the actual impact? So it's not only about like what we take from the wild, but why are we part of the consequence of virus spill over biodiversity loss? You know, how do I as a consumer actually drive this? Which is like why I was so delighted that this very one photo was a finalist in this year's wildlife photography of the year. I felt like, oh, brilliant that the judges immediately picked up on this, you know? They know that this is now the next step, basically. But um, I mean, I think, you know, the, these sort of pictures, it's sort of endless what you can do and, and in so many different countries. And of course, there are now so many different countries now who sort of want to work with me, but I'm also just only one person and I can only do so much, you know? 
Um, but but the good thing is that I have sort of encouraged quite a lot of people and and hopefully also younger people who kind of look at all these subjects and go and you know like in some ways I feel like maybe I'm becoming more like a facilitator as well hopefully because you know I would I would love to help you know younger people to 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 go to places but as I said I mean I'm also feeling often overwhelmed with what people need from me and want from me and you know because there's only so many hours in a day you know and so many things I could sort of get get done but I work sort of a lot. Well it's lovely that you want to help people and that you're dedicated to the cause. <laughs> I think just moving moving forward to photographers against wildlife crime so this is your last the last project before the most recent one and the last book Mm. and it is a collaboration between you and lots of other wildlife photographers so I just wondered if you could say what the what the project is and also why you think it's important for photographers to get involved in projects like this. I mean I think you know to just one thing I, I should say straight straight what you just literally to answer why is it important it's because you are more powerful when you unite over something, you know? I mean, the attention we received with that project was, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, to be honest, I never expected this. So basically what really happened is that Keith Wilson, um, my sort of partner in crime, I sometimes say, so he's basically a journalist I've been working with and a, a very good writer. And he's been working on other books before and he just approached me and after I gave a talk and said, in fact, it might've, maybe it was actually at, at Wild Screen, I'm not sure, but he approached me and he said, Bridget, your work is so different to anything else I've seen. I would love to somehow do a book with your work. And I was like, thank you, but no, thank you. Because I'm not really sure how a book by Bridget Shinsky, you know, with my photos, is going to make a, a massive difference to this planet. Um, I think individual pictures published by certain magazines, whatever, yes, but like as a book, like who's, who's going to buy this book, you know? And how many books do we print to have a global audience, you know? And he was like, oh, you know, but I think because it's so different, we could get a lot of attention for it. And... Um, anyway, he kept sort of pushing me for it, and I kept saying no. And it, it sort of it suddenly came to me after I spoke to some other photographers at an award ceremony, actually, where we admitted to each other that we all felt very depressed and frustrated about the state of the planet. And we literally said around the round table, like, we've got to do something together. But then, of course, nothing happened. Um, but I then went back to Keith and I said, hey, how about a project with several photographers who all work on wildlife crimes. And he said, okay, that sounds really interesting. What would he call it? Like, what would he, how would he sum it up? And I said, photographers against wildlife crime. And he went, wow, I love this. Who I love it. It's <laughs> a great one. Who are you thinking? And I said, oh, so Brent Sturton, Steve Winter, Michael Nick Nichols, Adrian Stern, Charlie Hamlin James. And he was like, yeah, dream on, he said. <laughs> and I was like, why? Let me ask these guys. You know, I know them all. So, uh, oh yeah, and Chris Packett was also one of my, uh, you know, on my wish list and, um, and unders, others. So I then wrote an email to first, I thought if I get the three biggest ones in first, then everybody else will want to be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly how it works I just basically sent an email and and had a one-liner back from everybody literally saying absolutely count me in you know people wanted to be part of it that's awesome I know I know I mean I had to say at the time I said listen guys there's no money in there it's like if anything it's going to break our neck because you know it's just completely no money project um and they all said that's fine 
you know, we just, I think everybody was just so relieved that we could do something at the time because we were all really scared about what's happening on the planet, you know? So anyway, and then we did, and it was a really amazing experience. Uh, also working with, with Keith and publishing this book, it was such a big success, but it was also, you know, it was killing us. I mean, it nearly killed us, you know, this project. Like, yeah, financially and, and also, I mean, the hours we put in were insane. It was insane. I mean, the extra miles we went for this project was, was absolutely insane. And I kept saying to Keith, don't you ever ask me to do another book? And then even on stage, when we sometimes gave presentations together, I would say like, it's his fault. And then he would say, no, it's her fault. You know, we sort of blimey. And we had our moments where we were literally shouting at each other, saying, it was your fault. You started this. This project is killing me. It's funny. Actually, looking back now. But of course, it was a massive success. And then because it was so successful, at the end, we, we actually received more money for it to then publish the bilingual edition. First uh, edition, which is probably the one you know, um, was in 2018, English edition. 2019, we published the bilingual edition, Chinese and English. And then we, we shipped a lot of copies to China, but we weren't allowed to do bulk shipments. They were literally confiscated by Chinese authorities. So what we had to do is literally say to people, just order individually, and we had to ship them all individually, which was crazy. I, mean, I just had this um, vision of your books stacked up next to all of the confiscated kind of wildlife <laughs> things. That might be a good photo for you. <laughs> Seriously, do you know what? I think it probably did happen at some point. But, you know, the reason why I said it, it killed us financially is because the shipping expense was insane. I mean, we also, during the pandemic, we start, we, we kept shipping these books. And I'll tell you as an example, we literally paid 160 euro to ship one book to China, <laughs> which Chinese people, because in China for that book, we made a special price of 20 euros because we wanted people to have access to it. And because of demographics, you know, in fact, we couldn't sell it there for 50 euros or for like, I mean, this book right now, because it's, we've, it comes very close to the end of the print run now. It's now, I think we're selling it for 80 pounds, I think or something like that. At events, a, a bit cheaper, but you know, we ended up like getting orders 20 euros and then paid 160 to ship it. We were like, oh my God. But we wanted to keep it shipping, you know, obviously it needed to be heard in China. But you know what, then I was also in 2019, I was invited to go to China um, and it was an amazing experience. It was on a platform, GC Talks, it's called Get Inspired. It's the sort of subline of this talk and it's equivalent to TED Talk. And there I gave this talk, a very honest talk. I had to go through two days censorship and there were a lot of things that were taken out, but I was also given an opportunity to say a lot of things and I did not tiptoe around. I'm telling you, I really said it. And I also added a few things which I was not supposed to say, to which, you know, the, the organizer said, get out of this country right now because you were naughty, get out. You know, like we don't want to get into trouble. But then what happened is, you know, in, when they released this, it was watched by so many people. Within two days, I think they had 600,000 people watching it. And the organizers said, wait a minute, usually authorities take our talks down after 200,000 because they're worried that too many people get interested in, in one thing. And we can't explain to ourselves why your talk has not been deleted by authorities. Maybe they're actually liking it, you know? And then, uh, and I wasn't sure. I was like, okay, I have no idea what's going on here. But anyway, sure enough, I did really get a message from the biggest state-owned publishing house uh, that they wanted to work with me. 
And you know, the, to answer the question, can a book make China look, uh, it appears to be the case. So uh, we then produced a book with Chinese authorities, basically, for the Asian market, specifically uh, you know, address, addressing consumers of white life, basically. Um, and that, was, that book was published literally something like a month after the World Health Organi Organization announced a global pandemic. And according to the publisher in China said it did extremely well because of course people were so locked up, but they promoted this book and, and it was sold very fast. Um, hopefully going into the right places as well. I mean, from what I understand, you know, the authorities in China have majorly clamped down on these markets. I mean, majorly. I mean, as you know, partly China's in lockdown anyway now, but China has actually really done a lot of good work and I would, claim partly because of our projects i'm sorry to say um you know I, i'm gonna just take the liberty to say yeah, you that. should take some take a little bit of glory i think <laughs> i mean you know only partly i'm saying because there's so many organizations out there who have obviously done so much good work now i mean also in terms of law enforcement and supporting but um you know i, I felt kind of quite positive and encouraged and it was very annoying because we had a lot of things lined up for china in 2020 you know, to give talks and presentations and book launches. And, you know, we have donated books to uh, a lot of organizations and schools and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, none of that really happened for a while. But anyway, we're slowly, you know, digging ourselves out of the hole now and <laughs> trying to sort of revisit things. Um, but, but there's no doubt that, you know, it's, it's received huge amounts of attention, you know, on a global scale, this book. And our messages and obviously because of this these incredible stories by these incredible photographers which i feel extremely honored you know that, that i can work with them and then of course because this success a uh, bit of a combination of knowing that we can really reach an audience uh, not only consumers um, but also just raising awareness in general but also bigger you know sort of organizations and authorities and governments I felt very encouraged to do another project, although I do keep saying to myself, what, why, why, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> I was going to say it didn't manage to put you off too much. <laughs> so, so much hard work. It's driving me already completely insane, to be honest, but we're nearly there. Um, we printed the book now. And again, I have the honor to work with some extraordinary photographers who, you know, have trusted me with their images and, and also, you know, working with, Keith Wilson again, who's just such an ex excellent writer, and you know, like we just we just work really well together, basically. You know, he so on, on this particular book, I kind of took the greater part of the editing, and then, you know, together we sort of told telling the story with his text, you know. But it's it's a very complicated story to to tell because it's basically, you know, how everything is interconnected. You know, biodiversity um, loss climate change and viral pandemics, it's all interconnected and interdependent. And how you as an everyday consumer actually influence all of this. And, you know, it's not only addressing, it's, it's a little bit almost like a sort of self-help book, to be honest, just that we didn't want to call it like that. But it literally tells every consumer in Western society what they can change in their everyday behavior to make a big difference. You know, up until a few years ago, I would every two years would jump on these offers to get a new phone. 
because you know I'm a sucker for the design. You know, always want to have something new. It's exciting. The camera's always better. Blah blah blah. You know, lame excuses left, right, and center I've given myself over the years to justify, you know, buying a new phone. Little did I knew how environmentally, you know, unfriendly phones actually are. You know, like in terms of sourcing the the minerals used and batteries and and things like this. So. In 2014, literally, I stopped buying phones when I found out. So I've got this like really old phone, but it still works fine. And this is the little details. This is this is what can make all difference on this planet. And this is what we we all each of us need to do. We all need to look at our own consumption and our everyday behavior and start feeling responsible for this planet instead of taking taking. We need to now stop and and. And look, and then take action, basically. Thanks for listening to another Earth to Humans podcast. If you head over to our Substack, you can get more information on some of the books and topics featured in today's podcast, as well as a bit more information about where I am in the world and the environmental work that I'm currently doing. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, where we post loads of great stuff you'll have heard about today. The music on today's episode was from Blue Dot Sessions. See you again soon.